You may be seated. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. You know, today, uh, particularly just in the last couple of years, we live... Uh, an amazing age of social media. People are blogging, people are tweeting, people are looking at one another on MySpace and Facebook. And it's amazing because literally you can, uh, you can be updated on everything that the people that you know are doing, from what they're eating to what they're drinking, what they're watching on television, what they think about politics. All of this information comes to us uh, instantaneously so that we seem to know more about one another than we ever have before. People that we uh, have known or perhaps have not known or seen since high school or college or perhaps even childhood friends, suddenly we, we know more about them perhaps now than we ever did. But the question we have to ask ourselves in the midst of all this is that do we really know those people though? We may know about them. We may know information about their lives. But do we really know the person through those things? You know, the reality is that more than one person uh, has not been completely honest on places like Facebook and Twitter. They have instead sought to put forth a persona that is made up to make themselves look better than they are. They have been selective in what they post, the pictures they put up, to create a certain image about themselves that isn't really who they are at all. So the question, again, we have to ask ourselves is, in the midst of all this information coming, does that mean that we actually know people? Well, as we think about that, of course, the next question we have to ask ourselves is about the most important person we can know, and that's God. Do we know God? We can come here and we can uh, read the Bible, we can do Bible studies, and, and uh, per- perhaps uh, uh, people that we may have uh, known uh, uh, when we were younger and in other places have told us things about God, but the question is, does all that information actually add up to knowing Him? Do we, do we know Him the way we would know our own parents, say, or our own siblings or our own children? I was astonished that... A testimony in the life of John Bunyan was repeated in the modern day, listening to a man who is an associate pastor at a church in Washington, D.C., and, and uh, he worked for uh, a library in London while he was doing his Ph.D., and his mother came to visit. And uh, because of the situation, he did not have room, and so someone else who worked at the library um, let his mother stay with her. And uh, at the end of the, 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 the few days' visit that she had, uh, the, the fellow librarian was talking to this man who would one day be an assistant pastor. And this woman professed faith in Christ. She, uh, she went to a church, and yet she said, you know, there was something amazing about your mother. She talked about God as if she knew him. I wonder, when people hear us talk about God, would they come away with that same idea? Do we know about God or do we know God? And the question is, how will we know God? This morning, as we continue looking at this series called Vintage Christianity, we've been looking at the core uh, doctrines, the core uh, faith beliefs of Christianity. This morning, we come to God himself. We have looked at the scriptures. We've looked at God existing as a triune God. But this morning, we come to God, the Father, God himself, and we have to ask, what is he like? What is his character? If we were to know him, what would we know? 
this morning in order to, uh, to look at this, to do this, to answer these questions, we want to look to Exodus chapter 34. And in order actually to get context, we want to begin reading back up in chapter 33 at verse 17. Set the context a little bit. We'll talk more about this later. Um, Israel has sinned. They have been separated from God. And Moses has come to plead that that he be merciful and that they be uh, reconnected in terms of their covenant relationship. And God has said yes mercifully. And now Moses has asked for something more. He says, will you grant me a request? And in verse 17... We read, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. This is the word of God. As you read through the Bible, you find Exodus 34 is one of the passages that you keep coming back to and back to and back to. Not only is the situation important historically for what God is doing with his people, but verses 6 through 7 are some of the most quoted verses throughout the rest of the Bible. But more than that, more than just the kind of formal importance of the Bible's teaching, of its storyline, I mean, wouldn't you just have wanted to have been there? I mean, this is, you know, this is where the phrase mountaintop experience comes from. This is the mountaintop experience of all mountaintop experiences. You you have, you have Moses pleading to see God's glory. He says, well, I can't do that uh, because you'll die, but I will let you uh, see kind of all of my goodness. Now, God doesn't have a physical body, but basically he says it's, it's the difference between seeing me full in the face and kind of getting a glance at, at my back. He says, that's what I will let you do. And he, he hides Moses in this, in this little crack in the rock and, and this great glorious cloud comes down. And there we read, the Lord stood before Moses. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine that experience? 
But here's the thing. Can you imagine why he left out what he left out? I mean, think about, think about what, what we've read and what happened. And you think about what Moses writes for us, what he records for us of that event. He leaves out the one thing that if I were writing it, and I imagine if you were writing it, that you would have put in there. Moses, what did you see? What did God look like? What, 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 what kind of manifest goodness and glory did you see of the Lord? But he doesn't say any of that, doesn't he? We were, we would hope for a chapter, maybe two if we were lucky, but we get nothing. We get a verse that simply says, in the midst of this cloud, the Lord stood before me. But then it goes on to lay emphasis on what the Lord said to him. Now, why does he do this? Moses saw God, God appeared to him, though, though shrouded in, by the cloud, nevertheless, this appearance of God was before Moses' eyes. Yet Moses doesn't describe him for us. Why does he do that? I think it's this. The appearance of God is not nearly as important as his character. What God would look like to Moses is not nearly as important as the declaration of who God is that came from God's own lips. So Moses doesn't say, I'm going to tell you what I saw. Instead, he says, here's what you need to know. Here's the most important thing. I'm going to tell you what I heard. I'm going to tell you who the Lord is. And this is a couple of things for us. First of all, this morning, what it says is this. Though experience in the Christian life is important. I know sometimes certain people downplay experience as if you shouldn't have any experiences. You should just come in and you should worship and you should be encouraged and you leave. And that's, that's the same way. The Christian life should not be like that. Just read Romans 8. There is, there is an, amount, an enormous amount of experience that is spoken of in that chapter that should be a reality in our lives as Christians. Nevertheless, we should not base our understanding of God on experience. But rather, our experience should be hemmed in, it should be checked, it should be corrected by what God himself says about who he is. So we just don't go outside somewhere and have some experience and think, oh, that's what God is like. Now I know I'm good. No, we we take what God says, this is who I am. And we use that to evaluate our experience, to inform our experience, to make sense of our experience. So knowing God ultimately, though should be an experience, begins with a self-revelation of God about who he is. God says, this is who I am. When you come to know me, this is what you will experience. This is what you will see. And so regardless of of what has happened in our life, we need to come to the text this morning. We need to come to the same text that Moses himself heard, as it were, from the lips of God and recorded for us and say, this is who the Lord is. This is the person, the God that I need to know. And what we see are essentially two Two large categories of truth and then a response that we should emulate in Moses. So three things this morning. The first is this. We need to see the lordship of the covenant God. The lordship of the covenant God. 
The immediate context for what is happening uh, here in our passage is involves the covenant relationship between God and Israel. You will remember from Exodus that Israel had grown from being a very large family of about 70, uh, centered around 12 sons, to a large nation of millions divided up into 12 tribes. And all of that growth took place in Egypt, very specifically. This massive growth from family to nation took place in fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. And yet it was also so that fulfillment of promise that gave uh, Egypt uh, um, the scaredy pants. It made them afraid. They're looking at this large group of people and they're saying, well, they're just going to keep growing, they're going to keep growing, they're going to take over the nation. So we need to do something about these people. We are fearful of them. They might enslave us. So what should we do? Let's enslave them first. That's what made sense to, to the Egyptians and that's exactly what they did. And yet... Even though no one knew Joseph, this great man of faith, nor did most of Israel know Joseph's God, the God of Israel, nevertheless, God heard the cries of his people and he raised up Moses to be their deliverer. Moses was sent to Egypt and was the instrument through which God revealed his power over the Egyptian gods, causing Israel to be set free. And God brought them to Mount Sinai where he he entered into a covenant relationship with him. This is a special relationship with the Lord that he established between Israel and himself. He would be their God and they would be his people. As the Lord's people, they received his blessing, his law, his tabernacle, and his sacrifices. And all this, that is to say, they received his provision and protection. They received his instruction on how to live and a system of worship whereby they as a sinful people can still dwell in the midst of a holy God. It's a beautiful picture of redemption. It's one that goes back to over and over and over again in the Bible. Specifically, when we get to the cross of Christ, the, the Exodus event is looked to as a major foreshadowing of both the corporate and the individual event by which God brings us to faith in Christ. And yet... It's this beautiful picture that is almost immediately sullied by the sin of Israel. God comes down the mountain. He declares the law, the Ten Commandments. Israel says, we will do all that you have instructed us to do. But we cannot stand to be in God's presence. Moses, you go back up for us because God scares us. He is a holy God. So Moses goes back up to receive the rest of the law. But he is there too long for Israel. They fear he is dead, and because Moses has been the link between themselves and God, they say we need to come up with some other way of relating to God. So even though they've just said we will not create any graven image of the Lord, they decide to create a graven image of the Lord. God is often pictured as a husband to Israel, therefore the covenant vows that they took is very much like wedding vows. You can imagine the shame The ignominy of a couple, a husband and a wife, a betrothed couple standing making these these covenant promises of marriage to one another. To always love, cherish, and obey one another. To, To live their lives in faithfulness, in sickness, and in health. And then, and then after the pictures are over, on the way to the reception, perhaps just after the reception, before the honeymoon even begins, the new bride is caught making out with some other guy. I mean, just the thought of that sends, it's like fingernails down a chalkboard on, on my soul. It's like a kick in the gut. It makes me want to wretch. And yet that's exactly what Israel had done. 
so short a time after their covenant relationship, their marriage vows, as it were, to God, and yet they went back on them. Moses himself is, in fact, sickened by this display. He holds up the commands that they had promised to obey, and he smashes them in frustration, saying, you have already broken the commandments and the covenant with your God. God is sickened as well, and his suggestion is this. Look, Moses, I promised Abraham a people. And you know what? I've given him a people, and they've been... They've turned out to be pretty rotten. But you're a son of Abraham. Why don't I just start over with you? Why don't I just wipe off this people and now we're going to begin again with new you and you will become the father of the new Israel. And Moses says, God, if that's what you want to do, you can do that. But just understand, what are the Egyptians going to say? What's the rest of the world going to say? Because they know you are the one who brought Israel out from Egypt. You are the one who displayed your power. Don't. Be a mockery among the nations. Show mercy on your people and forgive them again. Moses stands in the gap between a sinful people and a holy God. He prays for them. He begs mercy for them. And God responds positively. He says, I will renew the covenant that they have broken. But God asks, or Moses rather, asks for more, doesn't he? He asks for that vision of God. He asks to see his glory because what he realizes is, he needs something that's going to sustain him over the long haul as he seeks to lead this sinful people. He needs something other than the experience of seeing sin after sin after sin, infidelity after infidelity after infidelity. He needs something rock solid that will be to him a bedrock foundation so that he can continue on faithfully serving the Lord. And he says, God, I know what that will be. It's to see your glory. That will be enough for me. That will sustain me. And again, the Lord replies, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Now again, it's this context. It's this context that brings together these two things. God as the covenant Lord It's this covenant relationship with his people that is in focus here in his lordship over that and over everyone. You see, many people today almost think of God as an abstract thing. People think of of God as some kind of idea or, or, or some force. And even if people think of God as a person, very often they don't think of him as a knowable person. Okay, so for instance, if you were to talk to uh, specifically Muslims, they would say, well, God, um, God is a person, but you can't know him because he's so far and above who you are. Uh, God doesn't relate like that. He's way over there. You're way down here. Talking with someone who is now a a family member of mine at one point, um, we were talking about uh, religion because he knew that I was a a minister. And and he said, well, you know, I, you know, I'm an agnostic. I said, well, what do you think that means? He says, well, I mean, there could be a God, but I don't know if there is or not. He said, I will tell you this, though. If there is a God, I don't think it's the Christian God. That's not the God of the Bible. You're not going to be able to know God like that. Oh, okay. Thanks for the info. Here's the problem. God says you can't know him that way. God says I am knowable. God says I will condescend from the heavenly places down to the midst of sinful humanity and make myself known to them. 
More than that, I will enter into covenant promises with them. I will pledge to be their God and they will pledge to be my people and we will have this relationship with one another. And all of this, all of this is in view, is brought to the forefront because God, in proclaiming His glory and His character, invokes the covenant name. He doesn't just say, I am a God. He says, I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah. I am the Lord. The same God that you saw in the burning bush when I said, I am who I am. This is me. The God who made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who said, this nation of Israel will be my people and I will be their God. This is the God. The the God of covenantal relationship that is revealing himself to Moses. At the same time, though, this this promise of loyalty from God is not something that comes as a guarantee. In other words, someone out uh, out in the world somewhere, whether it was then or whether it was now or any time in between or before and after, cannot just say, oh, well, God loves me and has a covenant relationship with me. No, it doesn't work that way. Why not? Because God is clear. He says to Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Even though the Lord is the Lord of all things, even the people of this world, he does not have to enter into covenant relationship with him. He did not have to enter into covenant relationship with Israel again. He could have followed the, he could have followed the plan he suggested to Moses. He could have said, sure, let's do this thing. Because I am sovereign and I am good. What does that mean? It means that the God of the Bible is never beholden to us. I think that we often think that way, that God is somehow on our leash. And when we tug, he jumps and does something for us. And that's what prayer is all about. But that's not who the God of the Bible is. We don't tell him what to do or where to go. He isn't our servant. Instead, he calls us graciously to know him and to serve him. He is the one who calls by his sovereign grace into covenantal relationship and keeps that covenant going. God shows Moses just as he showed Israel, just as he lived out this pattern of behavior throughout all the Bible, that he is a covenantal God. He is the Lord of all things who comes into relationship with his people. But more than that, he also shows Moses, he gives to him the revelation of his character. So this is the second thing we want to see uh, from this, the revelation of the character of God. It's one thing to say he's a covenant Lord, but what kind of covenant Lord is he? I just said he was good. Is he good? Is he, is he a hardliner? Is he hard-nosed? Is he hard-boiled and hard-edged? Or is he soft and mushy like jello that just squishes in your hands and he becomes anything you want him to be? What kind of God is this covenant Lord? Well, basically, from verses 6 through 7, we see five qualities that emerge from these verses that tell us what the character of God is like. First, we see that God is gracious and merciful. This is what the text says, isn't it? The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious. These two attributes are proclaimed together because they are in many ways a reflection of one another. For God to be merciful means that He is not going to give His people what they deserve. It speaks to His compassion for them, His ability to sympathize with their weakness. On the other side, there is God, uh, God's graciousness. Grace is His giving people what they do not deserve, giving them a gift from His hand. Pastor Phil Riken, the man who wrote the book that we're reading in our community groups, um, in his commentary on Exodus, talks about 
one time when um, he was doing pastoral counseling in his ministry. He had another couple over with his wife in their home. It was late at night, and his child, uh, who should have been in bed, came slowly walking down the stairs. And he said, uh, you know, you're not supposed to be up. What, what are you doing down here? You know the rules of the house. You, this is bedtime, and you don't get up out of bed. And he said that his son began to gently cry and confess, I'm wet. Now, how's Riken going to respond? He could have legitimately, justly said, you were told not to get up. You know the rules. Go back to bed. You should have gone to the bathroom before you went to bed. You've brought this on yourself. Good night. He could have done that, couldn't he? And he would have been fought as a parent in some ways to do that. But Riken didn't do that. He said, don't worry about it. And he walked up the stairs and he picked up his son and he took him to the bathroom to clean him up and tuck him back in. What did the son experience from the father? Mercy and grace. He didn't get the punishment that was due him and he got more than that. He got loving affection and help from the father. Likewise, God says, this is the kind of God that he is, and we see it even in Israel. They deserve to be left on the side of the road by God. They didn't deserve his love or his renewed relationship. But that's exactly what they got. They got love, and that love, grace, and mercy. We also see that God is slow to anger. Slow to anger. That's what God says of himself. And in this way, the Lord is unlike any of the other gods. Specifically, the other kind of pagan gods of the ancient Near East that people would have been worshipping around Israel at that time, as well as the kind of Greek and Roman deities in the first century when Jesus lived, when Paul lived. Why? How is he different in being slow to anger? Well, it's kind of like this. One of the commonalities that you read in all the ancient literature is that all of these pagan gods are fickle and capricious in nature. One small transgression, one tiny provocation on a bad day, and the fullness of their anger could ignite against you. Now, if we're honest, in this way, we're a lot more like the capricious gods of false belief of the one true God, aren't we? Most of us are not slow to anger. Most of us are quick to anger, especially if he catches on a bad day. You catch us when we're not feeling well. You catch us when we're tired. You catch us at a moment of weakness simply physically. And we are able to snap. We're able to bite someone's head off or to say something mean and snarky. We are quick to anger because of our enormous egos. But the good news is God isn't like that. God is not like that. Quite the opposite. He is slow to anger. One Old Testament scholar named John McKay says this, slow to anger does not present the Lord as a frustrated deity who eventually loses patience and strikes out against those who have thwarted him. It rather acknowledges that the Lord is reluctant to act, act against his creation, even when it is in rebellion against him. He waits long to give the sinner opportunity to return in repentance. If, if I were to ask you to yell out the age... When God saved you, when you first turned to Christ for salvation, I think most of you would yell something out that would not be when you're a kid. It would be when you're a teenager, when you're a young adult. Yeah, maybe, I think, from hearing your testimonies. Can I tell you something? God in your life was slow to anger because the moment you sin, you deserve to be a grease spot on the pavement and nothing more. 
lightning from the heavens on a clear and sunny day to fry you to a crisp. That's what we deserve from a just God. But he didn't do that, did he? He held back his wrath. He demonstrated he is slow to anger, giving us time, patiently waiting, allowing us to hear the gospel and believe. And he does that with Israel and he does that even with us today. Next, we see that God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The words behind the English here are hesed and emet. The first word speaks to the covenant love that God commits to his people. And the second word speaks to the faithfulness, even the truthfulness of that love that he commits to his people. Hesed, again, is that that special affection that God sets on his people with whom he has a covenantal relationship. So in their book called Doctrine, Authors Driscoll and Brashears explain that taken together, these words, steadfast love and faithfulness, has said and emet, these words speak of the constant, passionate, overflowing, relentlessly pursuing, extravagant, limitless, trustworthy, and merciful love of our God. It speaks of his caring provision coming from his strong mercy. He never fails and he never lies. As a result, he alone is fully worthy of faith trust and devotion because he alone will always keep his promises. It didn't take Israel long to show their true colors, did it? They were not a people of steadfast love and faithfulness. But God says, I'm not like Israel. God even says to us today, I'm not like you. When you came to faith in Christ, what did you say? I repent of my sins and I want to live for you by faith in my Savior. How many of you do that every day? None of us can raise our hands, do we? Because every day, even for a moment, but for most of us, it's much more of anything we like to think of. We take our eyes off Jesus and we turn right back to our sin. And yet what we need to understand is even though we have said, I want to live with you as my Lord, the confession that brings salvation is Jesus is Lord. Don't let anyone tell you that you can be saved and yet not be a disciple, that you can be saved and not have God as your Lord. It doesn't work that way, Paul says in Romans chapter 10. We confess that, but we don't live that way. If we want fairness, if we want justice, then God says, you've broke the covenant, bye-bye, you're gone. But he doesn't do that, does he? He says, in the covenant I make with you through my son Christ, through the shedding of his own blood, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. I will always forgive your sins. I will commit myself in steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And in doing so, we see next that God is forgiving. The Lord is one who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, we are told. We are masters at forgetting our sin, aren't we? We cover it up, we bury it away, we forget about it, we dull ourselves. We can say something mean to a spouse or to a loved one, and in 20 minutes we can have forgotten about it, not even thinking about it. When, when, when we're kids, it's a little bit different because our conscience are not as seared by sin. They're more tender and something can weigh on us for days and for days. And so eventually our, our children will come up and say, you know, last week I did something and I, I want to tell you about it. But when we get older, we learn how to play the game. We learn how to forget about sin so that way it doesn't bother us anymore. We call that maturity. Here's the thing. God doesn't forget God sees it all. He knows it all. 
even deeper than we would like to know. He sees every sin that we commit, all the sins that we would like to have committed if we would not get caught. He sees the hate, the lust, the pride, and yet in all of those things, he chooses to forgive. He chooses to forgive. It's the very thing that we see in our passage. God shows grace and mercy out of His covenant love. He forgives the sins of Israel despite their rebellion, despite their selfishness, their idolatry. The Lord forgives. And frankly, if there's one thing about the Christian God that still is left in the kind of uh, large thinking of culture in our country, it's this. God is love and God will forgive people. Right? I mean, that's what people want from a God. They want a God who will forgive. The problem is they don't want the whole package. They may like everything so far, but what they don't like is the fact that God is also just. Isn't that what he says? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The same John McKay I just quoted who said the Lord is reluctant to act against his creation goes on to say this, but the Lord is not forgetful and will not condone sin. At a time of his choosing, he will act decisively against it. So here's the picture of God that comes through, a God of immense mercy and love who is slow to anger and willing to forgive sin. But with that grace also comes holiness. God is a just God. He must punish sin and rebellion. How do we reconcile these two things? How do we have a God who says, I will want to forgive sin, but then he says, I won't let the guilty go unpunished? How do we make sense of that? You have to wonder how Moses made sense of that. What did he think about that? Was it just the, the temple and the sacrifices there that he trusted in to meet that tension that was in God? Or was it something more? Well, Paul tells us that it doesn't matter in some ways what Moses trusts in because the tension ultimately, though foreshadowed in the sacrifices, is resolved in Christ. In Romans 3, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine patience He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God proves He is both willing to forgive sin and perfectly just in judging sin by sending Jesus to be our mediator. In perfect fulfillment of the role Moses played between sinful Israel and a holy God, so also now Christ came to serve as the mediator. So that when we place our faith in Him, yes, our sins are punished, but they're not punished in us. They're punished in Christ so that we can be forgiven of our sins. So this is the God that we see, a God of glorious character, of covenant lordship. What is our response? This afternoon, next Thursday, Mother's Day morning, how is your life affected? How is your life affected by knowing this kind of God? Here we want to see the third and last thing, the worship of the community of God. The worship of the community of God. 
When Moses is given this great vision of God and all of his glory, what is his response? We read in verse 8, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. When Moses beheld the goodness of God and heard his name, he worshipped. What else could he have done? What else would have been an appropriate response? Maybe that's the wrong question to ask. Because it seems pretty obvious there isn't any other appropriate response. Maybe the question we should ask is this. Why don't we worship the way that we should? Why don't we respond to God the way that he deserves? I've told some of you before about uh, my friend in seminary, Sang Hoon Kim, who was from Korea. And uh, we both started at Southern at the same, uh, the same time. We had a class together and... Um, uh, we sat next to each other. And we kind of started up a conversation. I always like talking to um, to internationals just to uh, find out more about their country, see what their take on our country is. That's usually never a good thing, but uh, anyway, it's interesting. And 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 so we had this paper uh, that that came up, and uh, it was our autobiographical call to ministry. It was we were supposed to write out in about eight to ten pages where we grew up, where we came from, how God saved us, and how He had been leading us to participate in ministry. Uh, and so he said, um, can you help me with my English on this paper? His English was, uh, was not great. It was clearly his second language. And uh, he would often ask me, uh, I've been reading this in our book. I don't know what this word is. Explain this word to me. And sometimes uh, he, I would really throw him into a tailspin when I would use words like okie-dokie, and that would not be in the dictionary, and he had no idea what that meant. He'd be like, what does this mean? John, okie-dokie, what does it mean? He would ask me. And so I sat down there, you know, I kind of felt sort of, Pretty knew pretty much about who this guy was, but I sat down and began reading this this autobiography that he had written, and I realized I didn't know this guy at all. There's a guy who's you know probably 15 years older than me. He's got his PhD in pharmacy in Korea, and yet he has come over here uh, in the United States to work on some advanced um, pharmaceutical and chemical projects. One of which was this thing called liquid ventilation. Uh, if you don't know it or not, your lungs used to breathe liquid when you were in the womb, in the amniotic fluid. And so it knows how to do that. And so they've created an artificial liquid that you fill your lungs up with. So that way, divers and things can go down deeper and not worry about air pressure in their lungs. And he's working on this stuff. This is the kind of stuff like science fiction movies, and he's working on it. He's got all this work in Korea and all this other kind of stuff. And I'm suddenly just going, oh my goodness. In, in Korea, the, the depth of your respect for someone is marked by how low you bow before him. And when I handed him the paper, I not jokingly, but willfully and joyfully bowed low to hand him that paper. Now, of course, uh, showing all the more why I should have bowed low, he said, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. And he would try and bow lower than me. And we got into this thing. But my, my, my point is, knowing more about who he was affected my opinion of him. It affected my relationship to him. In, instead of relating to him as the teacher, even though I was helping him with English, I very quickly related to him as the student, as one who needed to be humble before him and learn from this man. Likewise, when Moses sees, he knows who God is, he has seen him do mighty acts, and yet when he stands before him in the cloud of glory, Moses' immediate response is not, I'm glad this is the God I serve. It is face on the ground, nose in the mud, worshiping before his God. What, what does that mean for us? 
So, you know, sometimes we isolate our thinking to think this is worship. And in about 15 minutes, it'll all be done and we'll be on our way out to lunch and worship is over. That's, that's not what worship is all about. Yes, this is worship. I hope it is worship for you. But it's more than that. It's not just singing louder in church, although that may be a part of it. And it's not just raising your hands more because the Bible not only commands us to because we shouldn't be worried about what other people think, even though that might be part of it. It might be having more evident emotions in life and in worship, because of, but that's not all of it. At the end of the day, it comes down to acknowledging who this God is, being humble before Him, and acknowledging that through our covenant relationship with Him as Lord of our life. In other words, everything from our thoughts, our desires, and our motives, our very lives, should bear the mark of one redeemed from a loving God, not because of what we have done, but because of His grace and His mercy to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. One who has been slow to anger, even with us now, fallible servants who don't always get things right. When you read through the rest of the Bible after Exodus, you see this self-revelation of God's character becomes the very bedrock for our lives. For every faithful Israelite, even for Christians, for all those who truly trust in the Lord, this, this knowledge of who He is, this revelation, these, this truth in these verses became the foundation upon which they built their lives. It affected even, as we heard from David, 500 years later after Moses. And when, how is he praying? It's based on this truth. It's based on these verses. He's actually quoting them back to God in prayer. This is the God you say that you are. So show it to me. Act this way. Be the covenant Lord that you've promised to be and preserve my life. So for us this morning, we need to remember God hasn't changed. The same God who appeared to Moses in the cloud is the same God who came in the person of Jesus Christ and revealed himself on another mountain to his disciples with Moses and Elijah standing there. It's the same God who in the person of Jesus Christ died for our sins on the cross and was raised back to life. It's this truth of who God is that should mark our that should be the foundation of our lines of our lives and should mark us out in such a way from the rest of the world that it is clear we walk by faith in this God who has served us with abounding steadfast love and faithfulness. Let's pray to that God now.